Welcome to episode 473 with my guest Tom Voss. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Sweet God, no, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. It's more like a gas station that's closed on Saturdays. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Uh, I want to kick things off. Well, oh, um, if you guys haven't subscribed to the podcast, that's a non-financial way that you can really help the podcast. So uh, if it's not too trouble, would you mind moseying over to your subscribe button? and uh, and subscribing to it. This is a beautiful email I got from a guy who uh, wants to be referred to as Kevin from Louisville. Not Louisville. You can always tell somebody's not from Louisville when they pronounce it. Louisville. I bet there are people that pronounce it Louisville. And those people should be cast to hell. On a bullet train to the bowels of hell. Kevin writes, uh, Dear Paul, this morning I felt compelled to write you a fan letter. I seldom do this. In fact, often I find myself too emotionally attached to people I don't know in real life. I will stop listening to the podcast and unfollow them. But I never did this with a mental illness happy hour, which I have listened to every episode since 2011. I have completed surveys previously and written at least one email to you previously. Each time I used a different alias and had a different email. You read my surveys on your show each time and responded to my emails too. Um, and then in parentheses, I never replied back out of shyness. I grew up poor and never lived in one place for more than a year. From age 8 to 18, I moved seven times and went to eight schools. I started having suicidal thoughts when I was 10. I've since been diagnosed with complex PTSD and social anxiety, which is no surprise. When I started listening to the Mental Illness Happy Hour, I was working on my doctorate in mathematics at a top-tier school in Boston. I was the only and maybe the first black person in this school's math PhD program. This added institutional racism and elitism on top of my anxiety and depression. While I was completing my thesis, I was calling the suicide hotline at least once a week. The only person who supported me emotionally was my therapist. And when I completed my degree, my thesis advisor, uh, who saw me struggle, refused to help my job search. She suggested... She suggested I apply for disability instead. Within a year of graduating, I was homeless. At this point, I decided, really forced, to cut ties with my toxic family and every other negative person in my life. I walked away from everything and started over as a homeless man with a doctorate in math. Now, three years later, a small college in Kentucky recently hired me as a professor. I'm also in the beginning stages of starting a nonprofit company. I've even returned to doing research. All my life, my dream job was to become a scientist. 
I'm writing this to thank you, as I would any other friend. A few years ago, I started writing a memoir of my experiences. This was after talking to my therapist about it. I don't know if I will ever finish it, but in the back of my head, I imagine sending you a finished copy, not as a self-promotion, but just as a thanks. Oh, man, that... I read that yesterday. That... that, um, it just really made me smile. Really made me smile. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Wayfaring Strangers. Is it Wayfaring? No, it's not Wayfaring, you idiot. Uh, he writes, I was buying cigarettes at a gas station and two old ladies were talking. One said, kids these days are always looking down at their phones when they walk. I laughed. The other lady turned to me and said, not this guy. He just carries his coffee and stands straight up. <laughs> it kind of makes me sad how much that meant to me. Oh, my God. That, oh, that's Christmas. That is Christmas, reading. It's like a little movie. It's so easy to picture. <laughs> hold, hold on while I take a sip of coffee. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Linny. And uh, she writes, Sorry this is uh, so long. After a big brunch in a local cafe with my immediately family minus my mother, my dad asked my brother if we had talked to her lately. They're divorced and cordial when they talk, but my mother can get really crazy, for lack of a better term. She suffered mental and physical abuse from her Latino Roman Catholic father, and it has definitely damaged her significantly. We're not close, and I do feel I was mentally and emotionally abused by her for most of my life. It is only now, as a woman of almost 30, that I have come to learn how a truly loving mother parents and have been minimizing contact with my mother. Our most recent incident came up, and as and per usual, my brother was my mother's champion and defended everything she did while telling me I was, quote, oversensitive. The volume of his voice increased as he defended her manipulative behavior and categorized her lies as white. He berated me and compared my issues with her to the, quote, grand scheme of things and told me I should think about the real problems in the world. He got louder and louder as he yelled that only I can control how I feel and I need to stop overreacting. This is his usual reaction when anything negative is said by me about her. He gets extremely angry and never stops defending her. I tried explaining that my experience with her has been different and he doesn't know everything that has happened between us. He denied most things, admitting to something small and then immediately bringing up something completely different and defending it as if it had any relevance. The dispute ended with me just shaking my head in defeat, tired of arguing about this in public. As he yelled, uh, as he yelled, did you ever get locked in a closet and burned with cigarettes? No, that's what I thought. I cried while talking about this with my fiance the entire drive home. After reading several articles about how siblings can have completely different experiences with a toxic parent, I learned that we fit a common archetype. He is the older sibling with a bond with our mother and will never see her as anything but good. As her only child and a daughter, as her only other child and a daughter, I've had to make certain changes to protect myself from her abuse, which I know will never stop. Now it's mostly just gaslighting, lying, and attempts to manipulate me. 
My awfulsome moment came when I read that he will never be able to see these things from my perspective. Tears poured down my cheeks and I began to feel relief. I can stop trying to convince him my feelings are valid. There will always be this disconnect between us, but I know what to expect. I will mourn the relationships I feel robbed of as I come to terms with this reality. I feel less and less guilt every day. I'm sorry, I feel less and less guilt every time I lose a day to being consumed by these painful relationships. I'm in the process of finding a new therapist and feel like I will get better and better. That is so awesome and painful at the at the same time, but it's it's so hard to distance yourself from toxic family members, but it is the kindest thing that you can do. Also, probably one of the most confusing things uh, for most of us to do, and um, letting go and just accepting that other people have their own opinions, and it doesn't mean that we have to try to win them over or that we have to endure them trying to, you know, convince us of their point of view. Uh, one of our sponsors for today is uh, BetterHelp.com. If you have never tried online counseling, I'm, I'm going to be honest, you're missing out. You've missed the boat, but there's still time to hop on the boat. Um, oh, I'm really uncomfortable with this uh analogy, metaphor, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I do it every week from the comfort of my recliner, and uh, I love it. Um, my counselor is great, and uh, she helps me through so many complicated issues in my life. Um, so if you're interested in trying online therapy, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so that they know you came from this podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they think is a good match for you, they'll pair you up with one. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you need to be over 18. We are also sponsored today by Early Bird CBD Products. Uh, I have been taking their nighttime gummies, and of all the things I've tried, many things I have tried for my insomnia, nothing works like these. And I'm so glad that they sponsor the show so that I could try them and find something that that works for me. Um, but they sell, sell a lot more stuff than, than just nighttime gummies. Um, they are a company that tests and only sells the, the highest quality stuff. Um, they, you know, there's a huge variety of quality in CBD products out there. And they thought, you know, there needs to be a company that vets all of these other products and then is a kind of one one-stop shop where where you can buy them. So check them out. And you guys can get 20% off your first order by going to earlybirdcbd.com slash mental. And then also use the discount. <laughs> I always woke up on this one. The discount code mental for 20% off your first order. That's earlybirdcbd.com slash mental with discount code MENTAL for 20% off your first order. Uh, and if you have any questions about CBD or their products, um, send them 
you can contact them through the website. You can even call them and, and talk to somebody, and they can help you navigate uh, what it is that you're looking for. Um, and I, don't, I can't remember if I mentioned that they don't have THC in them, but that was very important to me to have a, a product that was THC-free. All right. I've got one more survey to read before we get to the interview with Tom. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself probably not a good idea. He writes, I'm a middle-aged guy who suffers from major depression, anxiety, ADHD, and a big dash of OCD. I'm about 20 pounds overweight, hate my job, and have a tolerable relationship with my wife. As mediocre as my current life is, I'm doing way better than I was a few years ago when suicide was on my mind way too often. Thank God for medication. My awfulsome moment involves my sexy, quote, pouch underwear. My wife rolls her eyes at my thongs designed to enhance the size of my average-ish wiener, but I make no apologies, Paul. I really like my sexy manties as they are incredibly comfortable. Anyway, I was in a pretty bad car wreck and suffered a concussion and a broken leg, a nasty compound fracture. The medics on the scene cut off all my clothes. An ex-girlfriend just so happens to be an EMT medic, and since God must hate me, she was the one who cut my pants off of me, exposing my sexy, translucent manties. We pretended like we didn't know each other, but I swear I could tell she was trying not to laugh. Why me, Paul? Why me? On another note, I'm still in sexy thong underwear. I just drive way more carefully. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it, unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with Tom Voss, who is a war veteran, uh, an author, and your your publicist reached out to me uh, about an interview, and just from the few excerpts I've read about your life story and kind of your mission in life and the hurdles that you've jumped over in healing after um, the moral injury, as you as you call it, uh, yeah. of being at war, I, I was very excited to to have you on. These are such important topics. Thank you. Uh, um, I had no idea. I knew that the the suicide rate among veterans was high. I had no idea that it was one and a half times the yeah. the rate of the non-veteran population. Right, right. Um, that's it's yeah, it's incredibly high, and that um, comes out to a suicide every about every sixty five minutes um, in the United States by a, a veteran. Um, unfortunately, that's the what the reality of what we're facing. 
<clears throat> so where does where does your story begin? Let's just get a little background on you. Like where were you raised? What was kind of the emotional temperature of your house? Yeah. You know, your tools for coping emotionally, etc. Yeah, my um And you're how old? I'm 35. Okay. 35 years old. So I was born in a place called Waukesha, Wisconsin. I was just say Milwaukee. It's easier. Holy shit, I know Waukesha. <laughs> I'm from Chicago. Yeah. I used to do stand up in Waukesha. Yeah. So, oh yeah, Beloit, you name it. Yeah. Oh sure. Yeah. yeah. All those all those places. So Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. It comes out every once in a while I get the accent, <laughs> especially just coming back from uh holiday vacation mm-hmm. there. Um, but I was raised uh in Waukesha, Wisconsin and my Mother was a, a special ed teacher, and father was a social worker, and they, you know, mainly did that their whole careers. And uh, both are retired now. But um, from from a young age, we we learned that we're here to be of service to other people, um, and that was really clear. That like in my family, that's was our existence was to help people that are less fortunate than ourselves. And you know, I consider myself growing up in the middle class um, in Wisconsin. And, um, you know, that was a good environment to be in, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, was there any uh, emphasis put on self-care or was it just mostly kind of the spiritual uh, kind of uh, Christian thing of, you know, help those less needy? Yeah. Yeah. Very uh, Catholic upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of those teachings were woven into my upbringing as well, um, which uh, I'm grateful. I wasn't always grateful for that experience, but now I am, um, having been out of that, out of that, um, world for a while. And to how, be able how many, to, how many years did you do? Um, <laughs> you know, I was, conf- I was confirmed into the Catholic church. Um, and my sister who's a co-author on this book as well, chose not to. And, um, for various reasons, but, um, you know, it was just kind of something that we did in our family. So all through grade school, uh, all through grade school, all through high school, Catholic um, high school? No, the reason why my my parents kind of joke the reason why they didn't send me to Catholic school is because they both went to Catholic school. So <laughs> um, that um, I ended up going to public school because they just didn't really have great experiences gotcha. uh, growing up in that environment. But okay. um, still, you know, church was something that was uh, prominent in our lives. It was um, um, Sunday, you know. We would go to church, mm-hmm. um, but that kind of tapered off as I got a little older. My parents allowed me to, you know, go if I wanted to go, um, and it turned into more of a supporting role during the holidays and and uh, stuff like that. Sure, so. the old midnight mass pop. Yep, in. exactly. You know. Oh for, yeah, that's right. This is where I kneel. This is where I stand. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, just a lot of the, that going on. Can't wait for the peace be with you. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and and um, so. My grandfather also was a very prominent figure in my life. He was a World War II veteran, uh, ended up uh, being drafted and went into the Marine Corps and became a lieutenant and uh, fought on Iwo Jima. Um, wow. So he uh, was wounded in action and uh, barely made it back. But, you know, it's one of those things, if he would not have made it back, I wouldn't be you know, sitting here right now. So it's kind of reflecting back on his time in war. Um, but it's more importantly, what he did when he came back was he was a... a big fixture in the community. He volunteered for four or five different veterans organizations, along with being a uh, circuit court judge. Um, so, so again, another person in my life that it's like we're here to be servants of the of public and to help mm-hmm. the greater good and the, the, the cause of something greater than yourself. Did you ever see in, in him uh, anything kind of leaking out? the trauma kind of leaking yeah. out, the <clears throat> darkness that just couldn't completely be contained? 
No, I, I think I was pretty well insulated from that. Right. Um, I, would, I mean, maybe there wasn't any. Yeah, but. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm sure there was. And I'm sure if you were to ask my father that question, there would be, you know, times that he could probably, uh, you know, list examples where, you know, his, he wasn't patient or his temper got the best of him or, you know, right. whatever it um, ended up being. But from my understanding, there was no, never any, like, physical abuse or anything like that. Um no but, alcoholism. Um, yeah, there's a little, I think, drinking. And, and especially coming in Wisconsin, and this is like oh. later in the story, it's like it's a sport, you know, there. And I, you know, there people, are more bars per capita in Wisconsin than yeah. any other state. Yeah. And and what I like to tell people is, is like, if you're having an issue and you get blackout drunk and you pass out in the snowbank, people cheer. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, that guy can drink. And, you know, so it's a really good place to mask your <laughs> Especially traumas. when you're younger. Yeah, it's a little exactly. sad in your 30s. That yeah, yeah, yeah. A little, uh, exactly. Are you a fan of lining kugels? Right. And then, you you know, you have the uh, the whole, you know, all the bartenders know who I am. And then you're like, wait, all the bartenders just know, know who, who I, I am. am. Like, wait. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a thing. So, yeah, yeah I experienced a lot of different um, ups and downs through... Um, um, growing up, but the other the other thing that comes into play too is is being really conflict averse, um, which um, you know we just didn't really uh, deal with conflict in general, and I think that's kind of a a theme in uh, you know families that were raised Catholic. It's kind of you know be obedient and don't rock the boat unnecessarily. There's no reason to be doing that at all. Don't let's, question tradition. Yeah, yeah, just let's just move on from it, right? And uh, it's either but, because I said so or because God says so. Yeah, right. It's you know one of those things. So it's um, you know that was that was something else. But uh, you know, fortunately for me, that was addressed immediately in boot camp. So that mm-hmm. um, I'm really grateful again for that experience because if I wouldn't um, had that experience, I'd be very conflict averse to to this day, and. Um, you know, I couldn't imagine um, living my life that way, just completely avoiding everything that's going on. So, inside. which part do you think, boot camp or Catholic school? Um, which one was would be worse? No, which one do you think? Are you thankful for when you uh, say I'm thankful? Oh, I'm thankful. Uh, I mean, both the experiences. I, I didn't end up going to Catholic school; just confirmation, you know, classes gotcha. and stuff like that. But um, because if I didn't go to um, those classes, I wouldn't have ha- asked these hard questions about spirituality and my existence. And um, I knew that there was something that didn't resonate with me, but I just didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, for me, as like a spiritual seeker, that's the, the beginning of it. Well, this is this what's what's offered in front of me right now is not the answer for me. Yes. So, how can I, you know, find what's beyond mm-hmm. that? I, I think one of the greatest blessings and semi curses you can have is to be a seeker. Yeah. Because there's never really, you never really feel completely satisfied, no. <laughs> but your brain is always occupied. Yeah. You're, the, the, to be a curious person yes. is a total blessing. Yeah. It's also exhausting. So, <laughs> <laughs> And to those around us. Yes, exactly. Another hobby? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. 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 Uh, I want to ask you uh, a couple of questions. Yeah. Um, was there was there anything that you wanted to add from your childhood before we get to boot camp? No, I mean I think that's just generally laying the f- the framework of the environment that I, I was coming out of. I, I really consider my uh, childhood to be a good one. It wasn't very turbulent at all. Um, of course, you know, there's little things that happen. You know, pets dying and you know mm-hmm. stuff like that. But uh, as far as trauma related goes, it was pretty smooth sailing. And then uh, ended up joining the military. Okay. And uh, was there a reason for you to enlist? Um, 
you know, part of it was uh, understanding that my parents had limited resources. And uh, at that time, they were paying for my sister to go to college, and she was going to the University of Miami in, in Florida. Um, and I, I could see that, you know, I could see how it was, um, um, taxing on, on my, on my family for them to be able to support her down there while, um, while she was going to school. So part of the reason was for educational, uh, benefits. I knew that this was one way that I could do where I could support myself in finding a way to school, um, to lessen the burden on my family. But at the same time, following in my grand- grandfather's footsteps, cause I saw, um, you know, he's a, I considered him a pretty respected person in, in Waukesha, um, you know, being politically active and um, uh, being a judge in our community. So uh, part of that was another reason why I wanted to um, um, join the military. Uh, was your father ever draft eligible or was he too young for Vietnam? He, um, as far as I can remember, uh, he was in college and was, that gets uh, you an exemption. just graduated right as they stopped okay. the, uh, the draft. So he, he barely, um, missed it, okay. um, which I'm grateful for. So, so where do we begin in the, in the military? What, what important pieces, um, for your story yeah. as it relates to the book would, would be important to touch on. Yeah. I think, um, the initial reasons why people join, um, is very important to understand in why they feel the way they do after they come out. Right. So, um, feelings of institutional betrayal, um, a lot of these same concepts in within moral injury, um, having to do things and experience things that the general population, you know, is oblivious of, and there's resentment building up in that. Um, so I joined. Could you, and, could you, uh, bluntly say, you call it, I didn't sign up for this shit? Well, it's, you don't know what you're signing up for, I think, what it is. I and see. everyone has these concepts of what war is and um, what it is and what it isn't. And you have that completely demolished when you're in a combat zone. Because you train a, a specific way and uh, in the military, uh, you go through these training events. And then when you get there, you quickly realize that this training can never prepare you for what you're about to experience. Um, and that realization comes pretty quickly after you know being attacked a few times. You were a sniper scout? I was uh, in reconnaissance, yeah. We had a uh, sniper team in our platoon, um, but we did a lot of security for our snipers teams and um, also uh, reconnaissance. So give me some examples of uh, missions that you yeah. went on. So um, we operated in very small groups. So And, and, and if you can, yeah. share what you emotionally remember. Sure. Um, and, you know... Your peers, as yeah, well. yeah. Well, there's there's a shift that happens when you first get there, and this is, I guess, we, it's a good good place to start. So you get into country, and then you're kind of. Um, and you were in Iraq. I was in Iraq. Yeah. And North, what were the years? Uh, 2004 to 2005. So, so you were in the shit. Yeah, right when um, everything hit the fan, pretty much. Uh, I was in Mosul, so northern Iraq, and um, you know, ironically looking back, I remember thinking getting these orders. To go to Mosul, I'm like, God, thank God I'm not going to Baghdad. And then, you know. <laughs> That's where the resistance started, yeah, right? Exactly. So, um, but, you know, find, come to find out that, you know, where where we were was actually a, a pretty big hotbed for insurgency. And um, so we deployed and, you know, they don't really, um, you get all these briefings. You're just, you know, 
basically your whole way over there is is you're getting briefed on um, what you can do, what you can't do, your rules of engagements. Here's some things that you're going to experience. Here's what you can do. Here's what you can't do. Um, so you're all just you're you're kind of trying to like absorb this while moving across the country or across the world, and um, you know eventually you end up on a cargo. Uh, airplane from the Air Force, and we landed in Mosul in the middle of the night, and uh, they had a combat landing for the the plane. So what that entails is uh, evasive maneuvers on the way in. So you're stomach turning turns turning. Yeah, you're trying to avoid rockets on your way in, and then you land, and you don't stop. And they drop the rear of the plane, they drop the gate in the back, and you just hop off, and they immediately take off again. So you're just kind of dropped in the middle of Iraq or northern Iraq, and, um, you know, you kind of wait to see what goes on in the morning. Um, So when we got there, um, we didn't really – there's like an onboarding process, and uh, they call it left seat, right seat ride. So you team up with our scout scout sniper counterparts in the unit that's been here for a year before us. So you're uh, riding in vehicles with a bunch of dudes that have already been in it for a year, and they're all dirty and grizzled, and you just have no idea what's going on. And they're trying to give you their wisdom, impart their wisdom on you, and you have to uh, listen as the best you could, you can in those situations. So eventually you take over, and it's your platoon then running missions. Um, it, if you were to put a guy that hasn't seen combat yet, stand him next to somebody who's seen a year of combat. Yes. Just by their demeanor, the look in their eyes, yeah. would you, you generally be able to tell? Who oh, yes. It's very, very, talk, pro- very, talk, very prominent. Talk about um, that. And I think they've done, they've done side-by-side pictures of guys, uh, British troops, mm-hmm. of before they go and then after they come back. And you can just see in their eyes, their eyes are a little more dead. Um, They're know. not holding their tea as high. <laughs> yeah, pinkies are not. Pinkies not out. Up. Pinkies yeah. drooping. Yeah, drooping. <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. Um but, um, you know, it's seeing the worst of humanity, and there's no way that that can't have an impact on, on someone. Um, and what I like to say, too, is the things that veterans are experiences with post-traumatic stress and moral injury, these are things that majority of the population would be experiencing if they're participating in war. Right. Um, it's just that less than 1% of the population serves in the military period. Um, so you have a really small minority of the general population that have to shoulder this um, experience all on their own. Which, which is a normal reaction yeah. to an abnormal situation. Correct. Rather than an abnormal right. response yeah. to... But the way that it's seen is, you know, what's up with these with, with these veterans, right? Why are they acting this way? Because no one has that experience. And because it's such a small population, uh, it's really challenging to connect with other people that have similar experiences. So share share some missions, what the briefings were before those specific missions yeah. and what what happened. So we were there during the first democratic elections. Um the first democratic elections that they had in Mosul and, uh, you know, come to find out, you hear things like all us troops are pulling out. So Iraqis can conduct a free, you know, election when in reality where, uh, we got dropped off at four o'clock or three o'clock in the morning across from a polling site with a sniper team in a window, making sure that they can vote, um, freely. And, um, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon to see, um, rocket-propelled grenades flying down the road as people were trying to vote. Um, and we had to, you know, 
our job as reconnaissance were just to observe and not get seen mm-hmm. and be able to provide information, fl- the information flow about what's happening on the ground. Um, whenever we would have a mission, they would, they would be like, hey, we're 10 minutes out. Our quick reaction force, which is what we call mm-hmm. QRF, is 10 minutes out. So if you get seen, you have to survive for 10 minutes. And there would be like four of us in a, a second floor building um, just by ourselves, you know, kind of hanging in the breeze. Um, so there would be missions where, um, you know, if you get spotted, there's no, you have two choices. Uh, one, you take that person captive. Mm-hmm. And you say, you have to take a seat until we're done, done with this mission because mm-hmm. you, you know that we're here and you can't go out and tell people. Um, otherwise, our mission is blown. Um, so we had a lot of that kind of uh, situations. And then a lot of detaining of high-value targets. Um, so we would get um, an intelligence guy riding with us with a list. And we would do the door kicking and the detaining of the people. He would ID them. And then we would take them in and um, uh, drop them off to another uh, more of the uh, MP or the military police to do in-processing and questioning and stuff like that. So really um, looking at it from like a high-scale thing, we're the ones doing the, the physical work of detaining someone and dropping them off. But we, um, this plays into moral injury. Um, we don't know what happens to them. Mm-hmm. So this is stuff that ends up haunting, I think, a lot of veterans down the road and uh, um, you know, reflecting back on I don't know if that guy survived. I don't know if he died or if he lived or what happened or if he got, ever got reunited with his family. Um, you know, so we never had the, the luxury of being able to ask those kinds of questions or get answers to any of those kinds to, of questions. To the people that you took captive? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, what did you think or feel when the whole Abu Ghraib thing happened? Did you ever think, my God, what if somebody that I detained right. w- wound up? Yeah. And and it, it, it's it, there's conflict because there are there are times when you're like I know this guy is responsible like we have mm-hmm. evidence that this guy is responsible for attacking and killing you know American troops and then there's other times where you know they want to bring this guy in for questioning or you know whatever it is um, we don't we don't know we you know that's as a lower enlisted um, soldier it's like I have no uh, right to ask. Um, that's not my place. It's not my lane, as they say. Um, so it's really just doing the job, um, you know, being a worker bee kind of a thing. And, um, you know, years later, there are there are mental health repercussions from from that. What what do you experience in your body when you are uh, doing reconnaissance and yeah. you know that your cover is blown? What is it? What does that feel like? Uh, that's an oh shit moment. Um, and it's like when you, uh, have those experiences, you fall back on your training, which is like you train, we do things, uh, to muscle memory in the infantry. Um, so all the drills that we do for, you know, a year and a half, two years before you deploy, that all comes into play. Um, you know, the radio guy calls the QRF and be like, Hey, you know, we're spotted. We're, we're getting out of this place and, you know, you have to meet us down the road. And then from there, you have to find (laughs) your way down the middle of the street in the middle of the night. Um, and you know, people know that you're there and that's uh, a high alert situation. And right at that point, there's no really thinking about, you know, Oh, what are the repercussions of, you know, what's happening? It's survival mode. And, uh, we always say in our, in our platoon, that and I think a lot of military people have this frame of mindset when you're in these life or death situations it's just making sure that the person to your left and right gets home safely mm-hmm. and that's what's paramount at least on on our uh platoon level are 
are your hands shaking when you're doing this? Is, is the yeah. uh, adrenaline just off the charts? Yeah. So the adrenaline is uh, pretty insane. Um, it's kind of hard to describe. But there's a point that happened with me that uh, – so I was 21, 20 when I deployed, turned 21 when I was in, in country. And there's a point where you have to accept your own death which I think is a very important part because there's people that live their whole lives, you know, like they're never going to die, right? They're, they have this. So to have this realization at 20 years old that I'm going to die here, um, there's a really good chance that I'm never going to go home again. And once you have that realization, a shift happens that you have, you have to accept that point, and then you can actually operate freely as a as a soldier, and it frees you up. Um, so there's there's a, a point is early in the deployment where um, you go out and you're terrified, you get attacked, you you just you get a real good picture of the intent behind um, you know the people that you're fighting, mm-hmm. um, and then you start understanding the way that they think and um, the disrespect for human life that you see and then you understand that you know the the reality of you dying here is very good (laughs) it's very you know your chances are high Uh, and when you're in the middle of that are you more afraid of dying or suffering um you know it's interesting because in the infantry there's a lot of honor around dying on the battlefield so um i don't think people understand that um the um Selfless service and sacrifice are taken very seriously. Um, so I don't know any other occupation where you can go into an office and, you know, Larry in the cubicle there is is willing to die for you. You know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And that's what makes uh, veterans extraordinary is that you have men and women that are willing to sacrifice their lives for the for uh, people that they work with and people that they don't even know back home. And, you know, serving with people like that is extremely inspirational. What thoughts or feelings come up when people talk about the morality of yeah. us invading Iraq and that it was based on faulty information right. and that we destabilized uh, you know, a country that, yes, it was run by a dictator, but there was also some semblance of, of balance right. there. Right. What, what thoughts or feelings come up in you? Well, it was a, it was a kind of a emotional roller coaster because you I had two friends get killed there. So our platoon sergeant was killed in action. One of our squad leaders was killed in action, and um, you know, seeing and just being there for that uh, experience, and then coming home and uh, you know, seeing that it was really a, a government contract grab. You know, and you you find that out as a, as a soldier over there, because um, you'll be uh, lower enlisted, seeing a uh, civilian contractor coming out of the base to change light bulbs, and he's getting paid six figures. And you're like, wait a second, like so this doesn't something doesn't uh, add up here. Um, so you start to realize that you know, well, what's what's the real reason and purpose that we're here? Why are we doing that? And then you know, coming home and reflecting on that experience, um, you know, what was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Um, but a lot of people don't understand that you don't have the luxury to kind of contemplate that kind of stuff <laughs> in a, in a combat zone. Yeah. Um, our, we rarely had any downtime and we would go on 72 hour missions. We would come back, eat a meal, take a shower. And then the next, within the next hour we could be called out again. 
So it's just a constant cycle of like, you never know, uh, when, like if you're coming back or not on these missions, what are some of the places you're sleeping in? Um, are you sleeping on concrete? Yeah. Concrete or abandoned um, houses. Yeah. And you, what it's, it's really, um, you learn to sleep on really uncomfortable surfaces. Cause, and at the same time, you know, emotionally, uh, spiritually, physically, you're just exhausted. I think, um, overall throughout the whole deployment and you're really riding on that adrenaline and that fight or flight mode. Um, that's the only thing that I felt was carrying me through this because, uh, there has to be an emotional switch that happens. You just have to shut everything down. You're like, I can't, you can't operate freely in a, in a combat zone when you're, um, when you have, um, life and death situations right in front of you. It's, you just don't have that luxury. And if you do if you did, you'd go insane. Um, just trying to fathom what, what goes on. So you really fall back on your training and what you're trained to do. Um, you get as much sleep as you can whenever you can. Uh, if you have an opportunity, um, guys just pass out all over the place and, uh, you know, we mess with each other and, you know, have mm -hmm. a, have to have a sense of humor, a dark sense of humor to survive in those, uh, situations. Otherwise you end up, you know, uh, having a, m a mental breakdown. So walk me through a mission or two. Yeah. Um, so uh, one mission that we ended up doing was um, we were providing support for a special forces raid. Uh, so our job was specifically to um, set up a line in a uh, cornfield behind the village that was being raided. And our job was to, uh, depending on how the raid went, either uh, eliminate or capture anyone who is fleeing the raid scene because that you know some of these missions where they're like okay we know that there are 12 guys and they're having a meeting and we're just going to go and surround them and mm -hmm. detain them and you're like okay so these are all bad dudes you know quote unquote mm -hmm. bad dudes right that's the inf kind of information you get here's our our role in it so we have to set up it's called a squirting position mm -hmm. um so we set up we got dropped off by black hawk uh, helicopters and into a freshly manured farm field mm -hmm. and you just lay there <laughs> while the raid happens with uh, night vision on it felt like you were back home in wisconsin yeah, it's great i'm like this smells familiar yeah right? <laughs> fall yeah fall in wisconsin fall in wisconsin um so that that's one you know one mission and um you know i've done everything to uh clearing rooms um you know going into um active uh, firefights, you know, there, there's missions where they literally say, Hey, uh, drive down the street and see if you can draw fire from the enemy. And we're like, Oh, this yeah. sounds like a, a great one. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, you know, you're put in situations like that where it's like, okay, let's see how we can, uh, survive this. And you just have to like go in with the, the thought that, you know, um, the chances of me, uh, dying are pretty high. And I think once you're, once you understand that it's, um, free, free, free and clear kind of a Do you feeling. think that benefits you uh, after you're done, or do you think there's more of an injury? Yeah, I think it only serves its purpose in a combat zone, and that's the that's the problem. It's a you know survival technique to shut down your emotions and to encase them and shove compartmentalize things and shove them down, and um, there's no uh, space for them, and your main focus is survival. And once um, you're back and now you have to readapt to, okay, this is not serving me anymore. It's actually hindering me in this, in this life that I'm trying to lead outside of the military service. 
And in what ways does it present itself as a hindrance? Um, so moral injury itself pre pre presents itself as grief, guilt, shame, um, a lot of the things that are actually encapsulated in post-traumatic stress, but I really believe that moral injury is the root cause of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Um, so the definition of moral injury is witnessing or participating or failing to prevent acts that transgress your own moral belief system, your own structure. Um, and you end up asking yourself questions what, like, was I justified? Were we justified? Am I a good person? Uh, can I be forgiven, right? Coming back to the spiritual um, uh, lane that, you know, moral injury is is associated with. Um, you know, am I able to forgive others? Um, and, and I think these are some of the hard questions that a lot of veterans ask themselves and they keep them locked up um, and they end up isolating themselves um, with all these emotions. You know, people will often say when they're in a dark place, I'm isolating because nobody would understand. Right. Boy. Yeah, it's slippery I, slope from there. <laughs> it, that's a, that is a whole, that is a large people wouldn't understand. Yeah. I, I, I can't imagine what that has to be like. Are you comfortable talking about any of the events that caused you moral injury? Yeah. Yeah, so one of them was uh, around the concept of survivor's guilt. Um, so that is when, you know, your friends are, are killed in combat and um, you're still alive. And you have a lot of questions around, why am I still alive? Um, they had a family. I didn't have a family. Um, he was married. I wasn't. Like, you know, why, why did he get, you know, shot in the head and why um, am I still here? And... Uh, again, you, you, you go over this, you know, I went over this in my head for about 10 years, um, just stuck in this cycle of, okay, uh, on that day specifically, what happened was our platoon was tasked with bringing in a, um, a, a special forces team into Mosul and give them a kind of a tour of the city. Um, so what they ended up doing was kicking a bunch of the lower enlisted guys off the vehicles that we were on so they can make room to, to give these guys a, a tour. So it's supposed to be a quick, uh, quote unquote, quick mission, um, with, you know, we didn't need everyone. We didn't need to be at full strength for it. So I got the day off and getting the day off, um, on a, a deployment as an infantry soldier is like hitting the jackpot. Like you can sleep, you can take naps. I mean, you can go to lunch and like you get three meals a day, which is like a luxury for us. Um, and you can go to the gym, exercise, all these things. So it's like free sailing. So um, what ended up happening was I started to notice that, you know, we were getting later into the afternoon and I was like, hmm, they should probably be back by now. So, you know, I went up to our talk and kind of checked in and, and, um, you know, didn't get any word about what was going on. And, um, you know, the sun had started setting and then, you know, in the evening our platoon returned and they told us that our platoon sergeant was killed in action. Um, and, you know, right away you feel that I should have been there. Um, you know, we trained together. It's very intimate, uh, grouping that, that ends up happening is, is you live with these people. Um, you know, so I, I lived and ate, slept, trained work. Um, I was jokingly say it's like a, it's like a frat house with guns. Mm -hmm. Like you're just around these people always. 
and to have one of them, you know, especially with someone in a leadership role, um, uh, get killed in action. Uh, it's like losing a father, father figure. Um, and it was really uh, challenging for me to, you know, as a 21 year, 20, 21 year old kind of make sense of, um, that happening. And then shortly after that, um, one of our squad leaders was killed in action. And, um, that was a, a call that was ended up, um, we were returning from a mission and we have little maps in our vehicles that kind of, uh, identify where improvised explosive devices are mm -hmm. and other people, it's like a little network. Other vehicles can be like, okay, we're plotting this on the map so everyone can see it in this, you know, we have a map of the city. Here it is. Um, so we came up to one of these improvised explosive devices and we had two choices. One was to go down a route that was, uh, blacked out. So they're like, do not like attack is imminent on this. Like they hadn't, mm -hmm. they spotted an ambush that was set up on this road. So then they divert all the, um, routes away from that. Um, but the other option was an improvised explosive device. So we had to make a call of a definite ambush or, uh, improvised explosive device on the side of the road. And we decided to take the blast, uh, versus, um, going down the other way. And what ended up happening is we got hit with an improvised explosive device. So an explosion happened and then we got ambushed from rooftops, um, um, and ended up, uh, killing one of our, uh, squad leaders. So again, it was one of those things where, you know, you try to make the best call in that situation. And even when you try to make the best decisions, things still go wrong. And so what are you doing in that moment? You hit the device. Um, did it hit your actual vehicle or just one in the one of the convoy? Yeah, we had four vehicles in our convoy and they detonated pretty immediately, usually on the second or third, um, you know, depending on where you are. So it didn't hit my vehicle directly. Um, but, uh, you know, we all got down in our vehicles. Usually they have air guards out, guys that are exposed mm -hmm. on the weapons. And um, so we knew an attack was going to happen. Uh, we just didn't know what kind or where from or, you know, what it, lo what, what it was going to look like. And after everyone came up from getting hit with the IED, um, that's when they ambushed. So um, you know, we returned fire and did the best that we could in that situation, uh, but ended up losing one of our, um, uh, team leaders, but, uh, squad leaders, sorry. Um, so what ended up happening then is I kind of walk you through the, the reality of it is that you have, uh, one of your friends that's, uh, incapacitated in your, in your vehicle. Um, I wasn't in his vehicle, but, um, the scene that I saw when I got there was, um, you know, he was being pulled out of the back of our vehicle to a uh, guy had arms under his armpits and someone else was carrying him by his knees. Um, they were pretty much covered in his blood and they got him into the medic tent as quickly as possible. And within, I would say five minutes, the, uh, lead doc came out and said, you know, you can come in and say goodbye. We did everything that we could. Um, so then you go in and you have to see your friend, um, you know, full of tubes and, you know, all the emergency kind of equipment that they were trying to, um, revive him with. And then you have a moment to say goodbye. And then, um, you know, I remember we were all just kind of standing around in shock a little bit. And there were guys that, uh, were ended up parking the vehicle cause we had to blow through a bunch of, uh, checkpoints, uh, to get him there as, as quickly. So these guys had to go park the vehicles and they came running back. And I remember this was one of my old roommates asked me if he was going to be okay. That's the first thing that he 
you know, because over the radio, we don't mm-hmm. go into too many details about, um, you just know that there's a casualty and that means, uh, there's an injury, right? Someone, right. someone was injured. Right. So that's what we all, all know in all the other vehicles. Um, that's all we, we do that for a reason because if you say, oh, you know, we, so-and-so squad leader, uh, got shot in the head, you know, that sends just ripples through the platoon and, um, there's a lot of stuff that ends up happening. Um, because of a radio uh, transmission like that. So there's guys that didn't even know that he had passed. Um, so there was like a, a gradual um, understanding that he was gone. And uh, from there, what they end up doing is giving you a few days off. Um, and I think it's mostly because of uh, retaliation purposes, right? You know, you took one of our guys, we're going to, mm-hmm. you know, so they do that. And then you have a ceremony for your friend. Um, on day two or three, and then you're back out going on missions again. Um, so within, you know, you have a couple of days to um, kind of contemplate what's going on and really kind of cool down a little bit. Um, there's a lot of people, you know, a lot of my guys in our platoon that were really angry, um, which is, you know, obviously you're going to be angry when your friend gets killed. Um, Did you ever witness somebody, um, because they were so filled with vengeance that they violated the rules of engagement? Not, um, not in our platoon, but you know, you, you, we've heard about stories like that in the news where, you know, guys just lose it and they go into a village and, you know, murder a bunch of people. Um, it's taken rules of engagement are taken very seriously to the point of like, you know, there was a point when I was deployed where they're like, you cannot engage with anyone unless you are shot at mm-hmm. like that. That's like, you know, we had to get like team leader, like, Hey, we're clearly getting shot at. Can we return fire? And they'd be like, yeah. <laughs> so like it's, um, it's a lot more strict than I think a lot of people think. And uh, I can give you an example of the rules of engagement that we have, um, and how they, uh, are put in place to protect, not only ourselves, but the civilian population as well. So uh, an example where we were in a convoy and I was in the second second to last vehicle. Um, So we get a call that um, the last vehicle, they had a a dump truck kind of barreling down on them. And um, they called it up and said, hey, we're going to do a warning shot. And they just let everyone in the platoon know that, hey, you're going to hear gunshots, right? Mm -hmm. So our first recourse of action is to fire a warning shot in the air. Mm-hmm. You do it in the most general direction you can that's hopefully not populated, right? So mm-hmm. you have to kind of put some awareness into where you're shooting off around because that round has to come down somewhere. Yeah. Um, so they did a warning shot in the air, and the dump truck kept coming. So, again, they, they called up, and they said, hey, he's not stopping. We're going to continue to um, you know, try to de-escalate what's happening. So they tried to engage the tires of mm-hmm. this dump truck. So like shoot out a couple of tires, see if he'll stop. Kept coming. Uh, from there, they engaged the uh, engine block, mm-hmm. um, tried to disable the vehicle even further. And he kept continuing to come and they ended up engaging the windshield. And that's when he, the, the vehicle, the truck pulled to the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we got there, um, he had no... Um, no explosives in his vehicle, no weapons in his vehicle. Um, I don't know that he could hear um, anything because I was, I was one of the first 
people up there because when you engage with someone, like clearly they shot him, so we have to go render aid now. Mm-hmm. Um, we, so we ended, ended up going back and I had to smash out the driver's side window, unlock the vehicle, and then we started medically assessing him and he had two uh, sucking chest wounds because he got shot twice through the windshield. Um, so here's a guy who... Um, we don't know if he even heard warning shots or whatever. He's you know doing what he does, going to work, and was trying probably trying to get around our convoy. Mm-hmm. But for us, we're like, okay, here's a dump truck, and we've you know had experiences where they'll just drive a dump truck full of explosives into a uh, police station and just detonate it, and it's the last thing you want um, happening to your vehicle um, or to your convoy. So you're tasked with a lot of these uh, life and death situations, these moral calls, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes you can do everything right and you still, um, you know, have your moral values violated. Regardless, there must be times when you are frustrated that you don't have more of a say, and times when you're relieved that you don't have more of a say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's really um that's the life of the soldier. It's like a, there's a rank system in place for a reason. Um it keeps people alive. Um if every, everyone went off and did whatever they <laughs> what they felt mm. they should be doing, it would be chaos and you know people would be um getting injured right and left. Um so really it's it's having this sense of uh trust in your leadership that they're going to do the best call based on the information that they're getting. Um, it's like a, it's like a terrible game of uh, telephone. Mm-hmm. All right. This is what we're hearing, <laughs> right. right? This is what we're hearing from our, our base. And you know, this is what they want us to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Right. <laughs> and right. that's really, that's the best, uh, that's a, the only way that you have to, to, um, address it, you know? So talk about what it's like spiritually having been somebody that, you know, practice Catholicism, went to church, yeah. you know, was told to, um, you know, be of service. And when you're in the middle of the worst parts of the war, um, what do you, are you having any conversations with your maker? Yes. What are you, what are you thinking, saying, hearing? The question that came to me was how can a just God let humans do this to each other? And that was the most, I guess, um, you know, identifying that I, I believe in God by questioning, you know, if there is a God, you know, how can he, it, he, she, you know, energy, whatever you want to ex- express it as, um, let this happen. Um, because you're just, I'm just seeing death and destruction, unnecessary deaths uh, and destruction. It's not like uh, World War II, where it's like we have these uniforms, they have those uniforms. Let's mm-hmm. let's duke it out. It's really you know you're you're being hunted and you don't know where it's coming from, when it's coming from, and you know they use these guerrilla tactics. Uh, you know not only are they effective, but you know they um, are are challenging uh, emotionally and spiritually as well to have to see that and deal with that. And did you get any answers? Um. Yes and no. I, I think that question was um, spurred me into deeper uh, inquiry into spirituality itself. Um, so really looking at, okay, um, again back to the question: How can this? How can this happen? Um, and I don't know that I have 
you know, a concrete answer, obviously. Um, but my understanding is that um, there's, you know, things that we see as good and bad in this world. And um, really trying to understand the reasons behind uh, them and what it really kind of pointed inside myself. And I said, um, this is who I'm not. Right. And that's the thing about moral injury is looking at it not only highlights um, the things that challenge you morally, but it also highlights who you're not as a person um, and trying to find a positive within those really, really dark moments in your life, I think, is the only way that you move, are able to move through them. Um, and this kind of leads into a concept of post-traumatic growth. So how are we um, not only just being resilient from these experiences, but how are we taking them and transforming them into something positive to help other people? Um, so you look at the veteran experience, and you have all these men and women that have these unique experiences um, with war um, that have a lot of wisdom that they can be sharing uh, with the general population. Um, about you know reasons why we should not be at war. Yes. Right? Have you ever read uh, What It's Like to Go to War by Carl Marlantes? A while, yeah, a while back, yes. Oh, my God, it's an amazing book. Yes. It's so frank. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's really um, seeing that these things happened in my life, one, accepting that this did happen. Yes, my friends were killed. Yes, you know, that's a really big one, I think, for me was just... You know, it took me years to just accept the, fa the fact that, you know, my friends are, are dead. And at the same time, there's nothing that I can do to change the past. Mm -hmm. um, those are two really big uh, realizations. And then the only way out of a lot of these traumas, I think, is forgiveness. Um, and really having a, a sincere understanding of um, I need to be able to move on from these things. And the only way that I can do that is by, uh, one, forgiving myself and, two, forgiving God. Uh, for letting these things happen in my life, right? And I, I learned that uh, from uh, a, ca a Catholic monk, actually, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is like a, an experience that I had as, uh, you know, I ended up walking across the country um, to kind of decompress from my time in uh, war. From Wisconsin yeah. to the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, Wisconsin to California. And along that, along that I met a lot of um, amazing teachers and, and people. I met a Marine Corps uh, rancher turned pastor, and he gave us a little nugget. His name is Pastor Marty, um, and he's uh, in Independence, Iowa. Just random, you know. Mm -hmm. He's like, "I'm going to take you guys out uh, to Chinese buffet while you're while you're walking." And he said, um, "Life demands a response, right?" So we got to spend the next couple of days thinking about like, how am I responding in my life? Am I choosing not to respond and that's my choice right and and life's going to happen continue to happen whether you respond or not so you know you have to understand um that concept of you know what is your response to your own life and that you know stuff like that was really uh vital i think in in my healing is and being like you said before being curious asking the questions um why you know why is this like this um and how can and how can i move through it and how can i get out of this uh, feeling or situation or, um, you know, how can I grow from it? Did you, once you were stateside and you were experiencing, uh, the PTSD yeah. difficulties, uh, readjusting, did you regret your choice to serve? I don't think that I regretted it. I think that there was, um, 
I think I really valued my service, um, but my experience with war was something other than that. Um, so I kind of like to separate them a little bit. Um, I, I like being of service to my country, and I, I, I think is really honorable. And um, I never dissuade anyone from joining the service, but at the same time, I have to be really frank and honest about the, the possibilities and what you can experience in, in a combat zone and how it's a life-changing uh, experience. Um, so coming back, and I didn't really seek help for about two years, uh, two or three years. What were your symptoms during that time? Had, had the PTSD presented itself? Um, I didn't really acknowledge it as that, mm -hmm. um, but I think my sister... You just thought beer tastes really good? Yeah, I just thought it was pretty normal to drink 18 beers before you go to bed, and you know that's how I would sleep. I would drink before I would go to bed. Um, so you know, you just find ways to maintain your life while trying to manage the symptoms that you're experiencing. And mine was a lot of uh, insomnia and um, anxiety and deep depressions. Um, and then a lot of these th things that are in moral injury, um, a lot of hopelessness. Um, after, after you've been in a combat zone, it's like the veil's lifted, and you know that stuff like that exists in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you come back, and then you uh, see that you know, it's a luxury to have the ignorance that um, yeah. you don't you have to experience these uh, things that are happening in third world countries or famine or genocide or all these absolutely just horrible things that are happening. And, you know, I was using this example as I, I came back and was in a political science class in, in college. I went back to school and I had to sit there and keep my mouth shut while an 18 year old was spouting off about the Iraq war. Mm -hmm. And having lived that experience, listening to someone who has no uh, connection to the military or just mm -hmm. has seen what has been presented to them on the news was, uh, you know, extremely challenging to go through. And I think a lot of uh, veterans experience that as well. Outside of that person being opposed to to war itself, was yeah. that what bothered you or was it uh, how they portrayed this war? Um, it's, it's like a combination of all those things, right? Um, they... Obviously, you get the politics of it here, but when you're over and participating in war, all that's there's no, it's survival. Um, mm -hmm. There's no um, well, we're doing this because it advances our political or like global aspirations right. here and X, Y, and Z. Like it's it's none of that, at least for the 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 men and women that are on the ground doing the work. Um, and, and people have to understand that the military has been politicized. It's, it's not a, a political entity. Um, it's something that operates independently, regardless of who's in office. Um, they're going to they're going to do what is asked of them. Right. Um, so we have these uh, men and women that are, are purely of service. Um, yeah, it's not their idea to yeah, go to war. Yeah, they're not at like, least not the lower. <laughs> yes, the, exactly. The lower ones. Exactly. So you ha you have to understand there's a there's a small group of individuals that are making these decisions um, to send our sons and daughters to war, and the outcome of that is generationally uh, destroying people's mental health. Um, all and, over the place. and we never look at that as a cost of war. We always look right. at the dollars, but we don't look at 
this might fuck up four generations of a family. Yes. Not, not, not just dollars too, but lives lost in country, right? Mm -hmm. We're not, we're not looking at the suicides that are happening because of someone's experience in war. Um, we're not seeing the families that are ripped apart because the person that came back isn't the same person that they, they sent off. Um, you know, and you see a lot of, um, you know, relationship turmoil because of this, uh, because of veterans, um, once you've been in combat, there's no unseeing what you've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me, it's really just been, okay, what are the most healthy tools that I can pull in, in my life, uh, to maintain, uh, some, some sense of, of normalcy and to participate, uh, in my own life. Do you feel like that's where purpose has, um, become a valuable thing for you to feel a sense of, of purpose? Yeah. Um, talk about that. Yeah, I think I think purpose is vitally important to the healing process, at least from coming home from war. Um, because when you're in, uh, people have to understand that, you know, the society, this is just my perspective on this. So the society is very individualistic and you're taught to strive on your own, stand out, um, you be, know, the best, be the best, win. keep going, go more, more, more. And in the military, it's not that. It's sacrifice selfless service, you know, for the greater good of all, mm -hmm. we will sacrifice ourselves. You so know? the opposite of Instagram. Yeah, the opposite of that, yes. So coming out, um, you know, you really, you're looking around and you're like, wow, no one has that sense of honor uh, or purpose, and you feel like that's kind of ripped away from you now mm -hmm. that you, you've had this experience with war. And then, you, you know, a lot of men and women are coming from that end up joining the military, coming from lower socioeconomic areas, um, and this ends up being the pinnacle of their life. Like, I deployed, I fought in a war, and now I'm back in rural Wisconsin, um, and nothing's going to top that. Right? Yeah, where's the adrenaline? Exactly. You know, so so that's where, you know, risky behavior comes comes into play. You see a lot of that um, you know the first driving thing, fast sport, first thing sport fucking over drinking all, all the all that yeah. when we got back there was like a group of four or five of us that ended up getting uh, uh motorcycles which crotch rockets and we just flew around uh pretty recklessly to get that that feeling that we were we were uh um missing in in iraq yeah. um so there's a lot of that that ends up happening is trying to like grasp for, for things that uh, provide you some sense of normalcy after having an incredibly um, a unique situation coming I, home. I have a friend who was a former gang member, and he said the greatest high I ever had was being shot at. Yeah. I'd say it's pretty indescribable that um, it's it's actually pretty humorous. Uh, you have to keep a sense of humor about this because, you know, there'd be times where we were getting, we were getting shot at, and, you know, someone just lets out a, a joke or these guys can't shoot for shit. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you'll laugh and then you're like, okay, let's, let's fight <laughs> kind right. of a thing. So you had like, we had to find ways to, to manage the, the severity of it. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for example, I got uh, a piece of rocket, uh, shrapnel in my head and ricocheted off my helmet, shattered the side of my helmet. Um, and I woke up to my, I got knocked unconscious and I got, woken up to my roommate standing over me uh, and he just looked at me in the eyes and he's like, Oh, he's all fucked up. And mm -hmm. that's how I like came to consciousness. And it's, 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 it's nice that you have, you know, at least a group of guys around you that have a, a sense of humor around, 
uh, a lot of the stuff. Otherwise, you know, you end up going crazy in those situations. At some point, did you think to yourself, maybe college wasn't that important? <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't really. Uh, you know, once you once you sign the contract, you you're you're in it. You're right. in it in it to win it, as they say. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's really. You know, I joined when I was 19, so it's just like, hey, let's. You know, this is a pathway for me, and you just have to kind of grind it out once you're once you're in it. I, I can't imagine how opposed to free education the Department of Defense must be. Yeah. <laughs> well, you think about it, too. And there's a, it's another interesting point that just came to mind is there's a lot of uh, small groups of people that are uh, promoting uh, bringing the draft back as a back. I, I would be one of them. As a backstop to um, uh, go, war. going to war so much. Yeah. Uh, once everyone's involved with it, it's a different ballgame, right? Yes. But if you can send uh, people from distressed areas, uh, lower income people, mm-hmm. um, and pre- you know, present it as a, as a career path out of sure. poverty. It's economic um, slavery. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it looks like a great deal. Yeah, for many people. For some people, you know, it's a way to fulfill a, you know, a dream that, yeah. that they have. Yeah. Um, talk about meditation coming into your life. Yeah. So I learned to meditate when I was walking across the country. I was um, given the opportunity to take a meditation course uh, while I was walking with uh, my buddy, Anthony Anderson, who's a two-time Iraq war veteran. And uh, we took four days off and learned uh, mantra-based meditation. And um, when I was able to do that, I under I like started. Uh, it was something that it's always interests me, kind of the mysticism and spirituality of mm-hmm. of uh, religion, and not not so much the right the rules. Right? Is what, this are you talking about TM transcendental um, meditation? I've learned uh, TM and also took a uh, workshop with the Art of Living Foundation. Okay. Um, so they both teach mantra based meditations. Um, so it was something that I knew when I first went through it and experienced it, that it gave me relief, right? And this was the first time that I had anything like that after. And you had done EMDR, correct? Yeah, EMDR. I've done traditional talk therapies and all sorts of uh, different avenues that the VA uh, provided. I started off uh, going to a vet center and seeing a clinical social worker Mm -hmm. to just, you know, start the process of uh, exploring different different, uh, clinical modalities. But um, from from I started in 2008. And I think from that point on, I was put on five different medications. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are just medicating the symptoms of post traumatic stress, uh, which is categorized as a symptom cluster. So they have you have depression, anxiety, uh, flashbacks, um, they say like uh, hyperarousal, so you, you know, you can't sleep insomnia, They're like, all right, you meet five of the, you know, nine, you know, categories. So you have post-traumatic stress. So when I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress, um, it didn't really resonate with me. And I was just like, okay, like, I mean, I guess, yeah, but it wasn't, um, it didn't really, uh, get to the depths, I think of, of what was really going on. And so when you talk about the relief that you felt from, from meditating, yeah, what did that feel like in your body, yeah. in your head? So before, before starting meditation, 
I would get really swept up in the emotion of what I was experiencing. So if I had something that would remind me and people say trigger or however you want to explain it, um, an example of that would I'd be driving down the highway, I see a trash bag on the side of the road, I'd move over three lanes to get as far away from it as I can because right. in my mind, it's an IED. It's an IED, right? And this is a logical reaction to seeing an IED on the yes. side of the road. And in reality, it's a dirty diaper, which is a form of IED. Yes. <laughs> so, like, you, you just never know. Yes. And it's really, um, um, but, you know, looking at it, like, I'm back home in Milwaukee, right? So you don't right. really have. Um, a lot of, I think, of awareness around why you're behaving the way you're behaving and the things that are causing that chain reaction. And are you trying to hide this from the people, you know, in the car with you? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I think I just kind of went along as if it was just, this is just normal. Like, okay. like if someone were to ask me why you did that, I'd be like, what do you mean? Why did I do that? Right. Like, what? like <laughs> yeah. of course you're going to get over our right? car doesn't have armor. Yeah, exactly. Like you want to get as far away from the blast as possible. You right. just want to like, you know, try. <laughs> right. So, so yeah. So meditation actually ends up giving me, or I, I find out it ends up giving me space to actually observe what is going on inside of me versus, okay, I see this, I experience this within me, and then I'm, you know, locked in my room for 72 hours, not talking to anyone, isolating myself. Uh, meditation gave me, I guess, the way to kind of pull that stuff apart to understand why that reaction was making me feel the way I did and end up 72 hours in my room depressed and so, drinking. So it kind of de-escalated your central nervous system. Yes. Yes, and, it, and it, what it ended up doing was connecting myself back to me, which I think I, you know you kind of disassociate from your body and, and all these mind and different things. Of yeah. It's like a survival you know, technique. So to be able to not only have the awareness around my emotions, but to be able to connect back to myself uh, was the beginning of healing for me. That must have been an amazing feeling. Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing to be able to uh, have a little bit more understanding, patience, uh, mental clarity was a was a was a big one. Mm -hmm. And when I felt that way, when I was like, okay, this is the new standard. I'm like, whatever takes me away from this feeling it doesn't have, there's no space for it in my life and that was the, the beginning of um i guess you could say a spiritual path or um healing from traumatic events and really just pulling out all the stops like okay i have to be open to try mm -hmm. as much as i can to try to heal myself and explore the ways the pathways that make me feel better even though they might make me feel uncomfortable um like yoga and meditation you would never have caught me in any uh, yoga class before um, if I'm not mistaken, it's illegal in Wisconsin. Right? <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, it could be. Uh, you want to do that? Go do that in Illinois. Yeah, all those all those Illinois people down there. Um, yeah, so it was it was a gift. I see it as a gift, and it was a tool. And understanding that, um, you know, you have to use everything at your disposal to. Uh, try to feel better and do better and, uh, you know, be comfortable in your own skin. And this was a great way to kind of start that process. Um, so we ended up, you know, finishing after five months walking across the country. And that was just like the beginning, um, really, of, of the healing process for me. And, and now you're going around the country yeah. teaching other vets how to yeah. meditate. What, what, what's that feel like when you teach someone to meditate and they feel relief from their 
PTSD. Yeah, it's it gives me um, again like we went going back to the sense of purpose, right? Like if I'm not sharing because um, I'm so far along in my own healing, right? And then, you know, you can look back and you can see in someone like, I know exactly what that person's going through right now because I've been there. I'm down to 17 <laughs> beers a night. Exactly. I can't imagine what it'd be like to be drinking 18. Yes. So it's like, that's progress though, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I feel kind of like a sense of responsibility. And I think a lot of veterans do too, of, of taking care of, um, if you're in a, you know, see a veteran that's struggling, you're going to, you're going to try to help them, um, uh, because there's such a, 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 tight bond there. Um, so really for me, it's a, it's a sense of purpose, but it also helps me heal, uh, being able to share my experiences and my story, um, hopefully brings understanding to other veterans and their families about everything that's, that's going on in the veteran community. Well, I love hearing stuff like that where somebody finds their, their purpose, yeah. You know, even if it's not their long-term purpose, even if it's for a year or two, right. but f- for me, it's all about finding the silver lining. Yes. You know? uh, because I, like on the news, watching the, the fires in Australia, a half a billion animals were killed. And I think to myself, why would the creator of this universe want something like that to happen and i think you know what maybe the creator of the universe isn't responsible for this maybe the energy of love or the creator of the universe is to find meaning in connecting to each other while we're suffering right maybe that's as good as it gets yeah and it's really uh you know i've heard this saying before it's it's a meaningless world and it's our job to give meaning to it so I like that. So when when you know we sit there and we see these horrible events and we can point them out and talk about them but if there's no action behind it you know the way that I see it is like these these horrible events and these uh the political climate that we're going through right now are all opportunities for people to step up share their experiences and try to uh uplift people uh to heal and come together um, I think that's the important uh, aspect, or at least the, the way that I, that I see it, is there's opportunities all all over the place. Yeah. Uh, the book is called Where War Ends, A Combat Veteran, 2,700-Mile Journey to Heal, Recovering from PTSD and Moral Injury Through Meditation. Uh, we'll put links to uh, all your stuff under the show notes for the for the website. And uh, thanks, thanks for coming on and, and sharing all this stuff, Tom. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Love talking to him. Uh, I, I know I've said this many times before, but I just love when I have a guest on and they share experiences that I've never imagined and they paint a picture of it. And I get these in the surveys too that just just feels like it makes me uh, a more aware human being. I have the feeling right now you guys are sitting there and you're listening and you're thinking, please, God, please have Paul talk about erectile dysfunction. Well, you're in luck because I'm going to tell you about Roman. I've shared many times on the podcast that it is something that I have struggled with and I decided couple years ago to start taking medication for it. And I'm so glad I did. I'm so glad I got over the stigma of it because it really helps me to relax and get on with the do. (laughs) 
Oh my god, that made me so uncomfortable. Uh, Roman is a really, really simple way to get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A doctor will work with you to find the best treatment plan, and if they think medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping. The whole process is super straightforward. Sim- not straightforward, super straightforward. There's actually a superhero named Straightforward. <laughs> he just comes to the scene of things that are complicated, and he makes them more simple. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com mental and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. So go to GetRoman.com slash mental for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash mental for a free visit to get started. Let's do it a third time. GetRoman.com slash mental. Let's get to some surveys. This is a happy moment filled out by a trans man who calls himself single cat dad of one, and he writes, I'm sitting here in my room after work, and it's mid-afternoon in February. There's a slight chill out, and there's a light drizzle in the air as we're coming off the end of two days of rain. I've propped my window open about an inch to let in the cool, fresh air. I light some incense, which has mostly sucked out the barely open window, leaving just enough of a smell to be pleasant. I notice Persephone, my five-year-old house cat, happily sniffing the fresh air and pawing at the condensation on the window. I can hear the light sound of water dripping off of the tree limbs and roof eaves, eaves, and I can hear birds chirping in the trees. My cat comes and lays on my lap, curled up in a ball, and I realize in this moment that I'm as content as I could ever hope to be. I don't want for anything in this moment except to remember how blessed I feel. That is a little movie. Beautiful little movie. Thank you for that. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Bruising Up Baby. She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. um, She doesn't elaborate. She's been physically and emotionally abused. She writes, writing this just after an altercation with my sister. After a long, long, long time, her abuse turned physical again. She used to hit me when I was a kid. Uh, She's four years older. She hit me again tonight. Her mania and depression swing back and forth pretty quickly. So, of course, she was in tears by the end of it because she was, quote, sorry, i.e. felt bad about herself. We currently live in the same house, and I'm working on getting out, but for now, I'm dreading the morning when my parents are going to try and make me forgive her. Any positive experiences with the abuser? She can be really fun to talk to. We have similar senses of humor, so that's always nice when we're both in a good mood. I don't think I ever loved her because the abuse started when I was very young, but I grew quite fond of her by the time I was in my late teens. That's the hardest part, I think, knowing that I didn't love her out of obligation, but that I chose to care about her when it was possibly the stupidest decision I could have made. Darkest Thoughts She told me a story about when I was little after she'd, quote, grown out of the hitting and bullying phase, uh, in parentheses, LOL, try again. 
When we were standing near each other, I must, must have been between six and nine at the time, when she raised her hand to stretch and I flinched because I was so used to being hit. She cried because she felt bad, but I can't even bring myself to feel the slightest bit sorry for her. I think she might be the reason I have very few memories of my childhood, that I might have repressed them because of her. It makes me so angry, but I can't even fully feel the anger because I've spent so much time making myself feel numb. She usually gets suicidal in these moods, and right now, I don't even know if I'd care if I woke up in the morning and she was dead. Darkest Secrets. Probably not a secret because uh, I made it pretty clear, but most of my retorts when my sister is screaming at me revolve around me maintaining the calm and stillness of a goddamn lake made of solid glass, mostly because I know that I'll, it'll infuriate her and I want her to just hit me and get it over with already. Guess I got what was coming to me tonight, LOL. She straight up disgusts me whenever she cries. I can handle some people crying, but with her, it's just sickening. I can't bring myself to feel bad about it, but I still probably wouldn't tell anyone. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. It used to be a lot of dom-sub-type stuff, but lately, I've not been into sex in general, and when I have, it's pretty vanilla. What, if anything, do you would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Just waiting for the right opportunity for some biting retorts about people who might have opinions about my relationship with my sister that mostly go, you haven't lived with her your entire life, so you don't, oh, this is what she would want to say, you haven't lived with her your entire life, so you don't actually get an opinion, shut your damn grocery hole. And why did I pronounce that grocery I'd never heard that phrase, grocery uh, hole. I like it. I'm on board. What, if anything, do you wish for? Sweet, sweet death. But I don't want to give her the satisfaction of knowing that I caved. And also, I don't want other people to fuck up my story. And I have no guarantee that I'd get a good obituary. I am not laughing at you. I am laughing with you. And... um Anyway, continuing, have you shared these things with others? Ha, 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 ha. Nope. I might with my therapist, but I have issues with letting people know I'm struggling. Hence the survey. Hashtag bless the anonymity of the medium. I really, really encourage you to open up to your therapist about this. There is nothing to be ashamed of. And it would help to have somebody in your corner. Um, because this is that, man, you got a lot on your plate. Um, both past and and present and it would you you deserve to have a support group you know a, a support network and life is so hard without a network of support and plus it's just shitty without it but i didn't know that until i got a support network support groups therapy, psychiatrists, friends that I can be vulnerable with. How do you feel after writing these things down? Tired. I'm already in bed, so that's good, but it also feels like I'm coming down with a fever, which is less good. Hills and valleys, I guess. Thank you for that. You know, it's something that <clears throat> we don't really go that much into depth on in the, in the podcast. Um, physical abuse by, or just 
abuse in general by siblings. You know, we touch on it a little bit, but thank you for kind of expanding on that. And, uh, as, as difficult as that was to read, um, thank you for opening up about that and going and going deep. And I really hope that you can get to a place where you can set some boundaries with your sister or cut contact with her. This is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Tina Ballerina. And she writes, I love a fresh manicure. It makes me feel like a million bucks without fail. I love the taste of coffee on Sunday morning. I love the last day at a job when you're ready to move on. That is a great one. I love trying on and test driving things I can't afford. I used to be scared to touch nice things. Now I'm training myself to feel that I do deserve it. When I'm skiing on a sunny day and my breath moves in and out in time with my turns and it feels so meditative. And I love the smell of my grandma's house. Her stuff always smells like Mexican soap. A simple, clean, and safe smell. Now, oh, those are awesome. Thank you for those. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Teresa, the one that quit drinking gin. Uh, I almost confuse you with Teresa, the one that quit drinking whiskey. And clearly, you are two different people. She writes, it was in September, shortly after I was released from a hospital after surgery. It was already too cold for laying in the garden as the autumn sun was slowly losing its power. But me and my mom took the deck, cha- took the deck chairs and covered in blankets faced the sun. I still remember noticing how wind was bending the grass lit in the sunshine, and I was feeling as alive as ever. Yeah, there, there is something, thank you for that, and there, there is something so nice about being right on the edge of nature making you uncomfortable, but being nested up in blankets or inside a, a house, it's, I guess it's kind of womb-like. Isn't that what we all want, just to, just to go back to, to the womb where we can just sleep all day, get fed. We don't even have to chew. How awesome is that? This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a trans man who calls himself Confused Kid. He identifies as asexual. He's 19 and was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been uh, the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. About six months ago, I was at a psychological assessment at a gender clinic to determine whether I would be able to start physically transitioning. It was coming to the end of the appointment and everything had been going very well when the therapist read over part of a report on me that she'd been given by another mental health service and asked me in an accusatory tone, why didn't you tell me that you'd been sexually abused? I was absolutely shell-shocked in that moment, feeling horribly dizzy and confused. I told the therapist that I had no knowledge of anything like that ever happening to me. The therapist told me that I was lying about this. Wow, what a fucking horrible therapist. Uh, As it's written in the report that I was sexually abused, so clearly I must be aware of what happened. Never mind that no one had ever shown me that particular report before and that the report mentioned the sexual abuse had been reported by my mother, not me. 
She then went on to read out graphic details of my sexual abuse from the report, and I gradually became more and more convinced that she was describing had actually happened, given that all of the details seemed to fit. This was obviously a huge shock to me. To summarize what happened, my mother witnessed a male relative sexually assaulting me at age five, but never formally reported it or talked to me about it. I don't know whether this was an isolated incident or whether this was simply the only time anyone ever caught him. My mother finally reported the sexual assault to a mental health service I went to at the age of 16. She privately spoke to the therapist about how she was worried that the sexual abuse might still be affecting me. However, for some reason, this therapist didn't find it necessary to discuss this alleged abuse with me and simply wrote it down in the report for me to eventually discover three years later. When I first found out about all of this, I thought that it couldn't have been so bad because I didn't think it had any negative effects on me, no flashbacks or avoidance. But lately, I've been wondering whether I was affected in some way after all. For as long as I can remember, I've had trouble sleeping, frequent nightmares, and OCD-like behaviors due to a fear around hostile people coming into my room. I also used to be strongly sex-repulsed to the extent that I would have panic attacks at the thought of ever having sex with anybody. I always viewed these symptoms as something that just developed during my childhood for no apparent reason, but now I'm wondering if the sexual assault is an underlying cause to all these problems which I need to first address. Address. Who knows? Brains are difficult. Uh, He has never been physically abused and never been emotionally abused. Uh, He also writes, uh, any positive experiences with the abuser? I have fond memories of sitting in my relative's room at about age five and watching him play video games as sometimes he'd let me have a turn playing. I feel ambivalent about this now that I know it would have been during one of those moments alone with him when it happened. I used to consider him my favorite uncle too. I sometimes think to myself that maybe I can't hold him responsible because he was only 17 or 18 at the time. But I'm a similar age now, and when I think about whether I would sexually assault a child as young as I was, I think, of course not. My little sister's about that age, and I'm frequently reminded that five-year-olds are so small and innocent, practically babies. What worries me is that he has a young daughter who, like me, is autistic and has difficulty communicating. I want to think that she's safe, as he seems to care for her very much, and he might be different now that he's in his 30s. But if there's a possibility he might be sexually abusing my cousin, surely it's my responsibility to say something? Question mark. No, it's his responsibility to not sexually abuse his daughter. And whether you feel comfortable coming forward or not, either one is fine. Um, it's what you are comfortable with. And I'm sure there are people that disagree with me, but for some people, they're not ready to come forward now or maybe ever. And for some people, it can be deeply traumatizing to bring that whole thing up again. So, again, the responsibility is on your uncle. Have you shared these things with others? Uh, He skipped a bunch of questions. And the next one he filled out, have you shared these things with others? I found out all of this stuff nearly a half a year ago, but I haven't done anything about it or spoken about it yet. 
I feel unsure whether any of this ever happened because the therapist at the gender clinic refused to let me see the report, and I still haven't been able to obtain it, and I don't have any memories of the events at all. I'm unsure if they're repressed or simply just forgotten. Given that I'm autistic and that I was never taught about the birds and bees or about consent, I was probably quite vulnerable to being manipulated and wouldn't have realized that what was happening to me was wrong. So there's a lot of evidence suggesting that I maybe was sexually assaulted, but I don't know how to ask my mother about it or what I should do if it does turn out to be true. It's all pretty stressful. I can't, I can't imagine how stressful this must be. Wow. And, and the mind fuck of having to deal at a, at a gender clinic, all of this stuff on top of the stress and anxiety of going through a transition. Oh, my God. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel worried about writing all this down because I feel like I'm just causing unnecessary drama by even discussing it. No, you are not. You're giving weight to something that is super fucking important. He's due to be married too, so I feel like I shouldn't say anything that would disrupt that. Otherwise, it feels nice to get all of these thoughts out of my head that I haven't really been able to share with anyone yet. Side note, I was so furious about how the therapist at the gender clinic treated me, accusing me of lying twice when I was telling the truth, that I made an informal complaint about her, suggesting that she should get training on how to sensitively discuss child sexual abuse with her clients. I never heard anything back, but sending off that complaint felt very cathartic. Thank you for that. And uh, kudos on sending off that that complaint. And I really uh, hope that that you find some some peace uh, around all of this. This shit like that is so complicated and just be kind be kind to yourself when you're when you're processing that you know one of the things we tend to do is beat ourselves up because we think we're not processing it right and we should be further along now or you know healing is awkward and bumpy and ungraceful but there are all opportunities to be kind to ourselves and to make a connection with people who are safe and let them help us this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Luca Lee. She writes, I went to a concert with a friend where neither of us really knew any of the bands. We just went to support a friend that didn't want to go to a concert alone. The first two bands were peppy and fun, but the third band was... <laughs> the first two bands were peppy and fun. The first band was uh, called peppy. <laughs> the second band was called fun. But the third band was a revelation. I just remember the moment me and my friend turned to each other and realized we were both so moved by the music we had nothing we could say. We bought a CD and t-shirts and went back to her house, put the music on loop, and stayed up to draw and just enjoy the music. To this day, I have never felt as content anywhere as I did in the time I spent with her at her house. Oh, that's awesome. I, I you know, oftentimes... When I play music, I don't really feel it. And those moments when I do feel it, it's so great. It's so great. 
This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself wrong, as in ladder. He identifies as straight. He's in his 30s was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. He writes all physical needs met, but emotionally very cold. He's never been sexually abused. He's not sure if he's been physically or emotionally abused. He writes, when I was little, younger than I can remember, my sister, who is 10 years older, would call me ugly all the time. I know she was a child too, but it hardwired the idea into my head. As the youngest of five children and the only boy, 10 years younger than my youngest sister, I was aware from an early age that I was in an accident. I remember one Easter, mom told us about how it was your father's fault, grandma's fault for having many children, and God's fault. My parents split up shortly after I started school, so it was just my mother and I for many years. We lived out of town. She was busy doing farm work, so I was, a left, I was left alone most of the time. I never felt validated or listened to. I went to boarding school when I was 12. I was bullied badly at school. I never felt I could share it with anyone in my family. I didn't want to burden them. About halfway through my first year at boarding school, my father disappeared. Not missing persons disappeared. He ghosted us and moved to the other side of the country. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My physical needs were taken care of. I never went hungry. I always had clothes, etc. Writing that down, though, it seems like a low bar. Yeah, that is. That, those are things that you know, you're not lucky to have. Those are when a, somebody has a kid, those are the things that they are required. There is an obligation for them. And there are also emotional obligations, you know, to nurture a kid, to guide them, to help them feel safe. Darkest thoughts. As a teenager, I thought that if my mother died, I would take a shotgun and kill every single sheep we owned. Darkest secrets. For years, I felt guilty about bidding on and winning a box of toys at an auction that I didn't have enough money to buy. I canceled it directly after. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Nothing intensely sexual, but I think about things that others would take for granted. Uh, Walking around together in hugs. You are a monster. Walking around together. Hugs. You probably also, in your perverted mind, think about holding hands. Ugh. You're a beast. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Dad, why did you leave and why didn't you tell anyone? Mom, I don't think you've ever visited me. And to a classmate, want to catch up for a coffee sometime. I can't imagine what what it is like to be in the shoes of someone whose dad just ghosts them. You know, my my dad was not emotionally available. He was physically there, but, um, you know, occasionally I would have a connection to my dad nothing deep but you know get the sense that he was there and that there was a safety net and um what if anything do you wish for a feeling of self-worth have you shared these things with others nope i lived overseas for many years and i lost contact with most of my old friends my family 
uh, aren't reliable. Essentially, I've always got my guard up. How do you feel after writing these things down? Bummed out, but it's been cathartic. I did lose some answers by hitting the previous button. That must be why sometimes I get surveys that are partially uh, partially filled out. Any comments to make the podcast better? I'd like to hear people's struggles in a sentence in their own voices, if possible. You could have people record their entries, just a thought. I tried that a while ago, and it it just, uh, for one reason or another, it just uh, really didn't didn't pan out. And um, But thank you for that suggestion, and thank you for your your survey you know you sound like a really deep sensitive person who wants human connection and that's the good news the good news is that you want that that you want to change and that you want to feel better and that's that's huge that's probably sounded like i was going to say something <laughs> more uh more important than that but anyway this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself falling off the moon and she writes it's a perfect indiana june morning and one of those rarities when the humidity is low so the heat isn't unbearable and the sun turns everything it touches into pure gold the dew shines like diamonds on the grass you can smell it the freshest earthiest smell in the world nothing in the world has soil that smells like that and i've seen a lot of the world it's quiet except for the sound of cows rustling in the tall grass going about their business and the mechanical clanking of the milk machines in the parlor. I see my girls, my co-workers as I call them, going about their daily routine, being milked, exiting the parlor, having breakfast, and wandering back out to the pasture at their leisure. I'm assuming she's talking about a, uh, a about cows and this isn't a massage parlor because if you read that, I see my girls, my co-workers, as I call them, going about their daily routine, being milked, exiting the parlor, having breakfast, and wandering back out to the pasture at their leisure. Uh, I can hear my boss clicking at them with her tongue to get a move on. They lazily comply. She gives her favorites appreciative leg scratches as they go by and thanks for their service today. I hit a strange lull, and for an unheard of moment as a farmhand, briefly, had nothing to do. I sat down on the bench, looked around at this glowing, peaceful world full of elegant creatures and said to God aloud, when I die and come to heaven, all I want is this. That, that is, uh, just such a picture. It's funny, I, I went to school in Bloomington, Indiana, and it's all the the drive there down I sixty five is hours of flat farmland, and in the fall, uh, it smells like cow manure. And I never really pictured a scene like like this. So thanks for thanks for painting that picture. And I hope everybody was disgusted by my massage parlor joke. This is a shame and secret survey filled up by a woman who calls herself binge eater. 
she identifies uh, as other. I'm mostly straight and have a boyfriend I love, but I've had several attractions to women and a few relationships with them. She's in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but she has been physically and emotionally abused. My parents had me as a replacement child for a baby who died from SIDS almost exactly a year before my birth. They, especially my mom, spent childhood comparing me to my dead sister who only lived for six weeks. My mom likes to remind me how hellacious I was compared to my double baby, my docile baby sister who never gave them any trouble. She didn't even cry when she was born. I like to remind my mother that she's right. My sister never gave her any trouble except for the one time she died. She used to hit me frequently as a kid. I have constant memories of her beating me as a child or threatening physical violence for minuscule things. One time, we were walking home from town when I was about five, and I had a moment of what I now realize was existential dread, asking her, isn't it crazy how time is always passing by and each moment is different from the next? She made some snarky remark about how what I said was dumb and threatened to smack me. That is so sad because what what you said when you were so little is so fucking deep. That is so deep. I'm in my 50s and I don't think I ever thought something that deep. Isn't it crazy how time is always passing by and each moment is different from the next? I was an only child and every weekend I ate dinner alone while my parents dined together in a dining room. When I grew up and had to move back home for a year after graduating college, my mother refused to let me have privacy in the bathroom. She would open the door on me while I was taking a shit, showering, you name it. And when I would ask for privacy, she would remind me that it was her home and she could do whatever she wanted. That is classic covert incest. I cannot tell you how many people I've come across that have experienced that and and having such uh, a violating narcissistic parent. She also berated me for shaving my pubic hair and told me I was going to catch AIDS, convinced I was doing it to clean men. I think there might be a typo there. Um, She even tried to forbid me from shaving my pubes when I was 24 years old, claiming I was clogging the shower with my hair. My dad was always just sort of in the background, acquiescing to whatever my mother wanted and never standing up for me. Um, If you are hearing this um, and you're the one that filled this out, I have a suggestion for a support group uh, I know of that... Your story is so identical to the majority of people in that support group, and I think you would find a lot of um, I think you'd find a lot of comfort and connection there, having trouble finding the words. Any positive experiences? Oh, and the book that I that I would suggest you read as well, which I've mentioned a thousand times on this podcast, is a book called Silently Seduced by uh, Dr. Kenneth Adams. Um, your story is right out of that book. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My parents gave me a typical middle-class upbringing 
upbringing. I always received a lot, lots of gifts on Christmas. I was always fed and clothed, and I always knew I could count on them. Nothing truly terrible or abusive happened. Oh, the stuff that you described is totally abusive. Um, Uh, nothing truly terrible or abusive happened, especially compared to a lot of the stories I hear from other people, so I'm often guilt-ridden by the intense resentment I have towards them. Darkest thoughts. I have occasional dreams that I am beating my mother to death. Darkest secrets. I tried to trip my 80-year-old babysitter when I was a kid, maybe about seven years old. Luckily, she caught herself before she fell but I still sometimes think to myself, wow, I could have killed that woman. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I like being degraded and called a slut by disgusting dirtbag men. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my mother she is mentally ill and that she's the problem, not anyone else. And you will be spitting into the wind trying to convince your mother that anything is wrong with her because... She is clearly unable to put herself in other people's shoes. If she, if she could, she would not be doing the things that she is doing. There is, there is no way to convince a narcissist that they are a narcissist. And speaking of narcissists, <laughs> she is, Gracie is not a narcissist. Oh my God, she... She and I have, <laughs> the last 24 hours have just been, uh, I don't even, just cuddling and me saying <laughs> things to her that if other people heard it, they would be like, dude, that that's really fucked up. I don't think dog owners would feel that way, but I always think... What if somebody heard me telling her that she's the most beautiful princess ever created by anyone in the universe? <laughs> what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could go back in time and redo college. I had a full track scholarship and I pissed it away. It was my first time away from my crazy parents' clutches and I discovered alcohol and threw away an amazing opportunity. Now I struggle to keep the weight off and obsess over my body on a daily basis, which of course sabotages any hope of success. Have you shared these things with others? I've discussed my mother's potential mental illness with my boyfriend. It felt great to get his validation and hear his perspective on a lot of the crazy things she does. My friends think she is funny, but he really gets it. And it makes me feel validating. And it makes me feel validated like all the feelings I suffered through alone for so many years were real. My parents made me feel like there was something wrong with me and that I was a terrible person. And now I know that isn't the truth. How do you feel after writing these things down? Anxiety that I haven't done an adequate job describing my family dynamics and that you are going to read this and think that's not so bad she can just suck it up compared to all the people who've been sexually abused that fill out surveys. You have been sexually violated by your mother. And whether there was penetration or touching or just somebody violating your privacy and, you know, uh, it, it, it's still 
an injury and it doesn't matter what envelope the abuse comes in. What matters is the feelings that are left in their wake. And I really encourage you to find ways that you can heal and distance yourself from the abuse. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I can't imagine anyone sharing this specific experience of being the replacement baby to a mentally ill narcissist, but if you're out there, we should get coffee. Also, your life will drastically improve after you work through all of this with a therapist ad nauseum and create a distance. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> I did not know that, that that was coming up. Um... It wasn't until I got my own place and worked with the therapist that I was really able to understand what happened to me. And it sounds like you are in the place right now where you are wondering whether or not you're making too big of a deal of it. And trust me, you are not. The, the path to healing is giving weight to what happened to you, not to punish other people, but to stop punishing yourself. These are some loves filled out by a non-binary person who calls themselves uh, Little. And they write, I love my tiny lavender tattoo on my wrist that reminds me to be gentle. I love the shape of my partner's lips. I love when my cat stops being an asshole for five seconds to accept my affections. I love when playing the guitar comes with ease. I love when my regulars at work tell me I make their drink the best. I love olives. I love the fucking library. I love the community of an open mic night. I love the gradual, sometimes swift process of getting close to someone. That first time you share a laugh with them that makes you feel really connected. The first deep talk, the first real hug. I love when the title of acquaintances fades, excuse me, fades away. I love slow mornings that never seem to turn to afternoon. I love the feeling of writing lyrics, the way they're accessed from some deep part of me and they're just in that moment coming out into the world. I love when my partner tickles my belly. Oh, those are awesome. Those are, and speaking of awesome, somebody just came into the room. This is from the Happy Moments sur survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Gogol Panazzi or Baxalon. I have no fucking idea what that means, but it's probably from a book that I will never read. Uh, he writes, I was meditating, a rare act of will against intense depression and anxiety that insists I distract and disengage my mind from reality. The post-traumatic stress I deal with every day raged in my heart and sent a spinning sensation of claustrophobic agony up my spine, tightening my back and neck. My abdominal muscles were like a stone, and it felt like my head would explode. I was feeling my true feelings for the first time in years. I was allowing my body and mind to feel the pain that was always there. I realized that I wasn't hiding my pain. I was hiding from the pain as it drove my body, ego, and mind. After that meditation session, I felt a little bit of peace for the first time in years. Even though it was incredibly painful and scary, I cracked open the door to a tiny, infinitesimal glimpse of bliss, the deep knowledge in the soul that everything will be okay. That was three days ago. That is awesome, and that is what healing is about is 
not trying to go around it, but sitting through it and letting that, letting that poison out. And then finally, this is from the love survey filled, <laughs> filled out by a woman who calls herself, I'm so codependent that at red lights, I sometimes turn right on a light when I need to go straight if the person behind me is turning because I feel guilty that I'm holding them up at a red light. <laughs> I often in traffic worry that the person behind me hates me because I'm not going fast enough. And I know that it's fucked up to feel that way. But I can't help just feeling that emotional feeling of of my stomach tightening. Uh, She writes, I love that feeling when it's it's a really cold night and you've been shivering all day and you finally sink into the bathtub and feel that perfect amount of just warm enough but still a little cold, like where you can feel the water starting to warm up your body but your insides are still chilly. Then that head rush when you get out of the bath and hit a wall of cold air, but you still feel warm and slightly drunk without drinking anything. I love watching my new rescue dog slowly adjust to her new home and her real personality really starts to emerge. I think it's sweet when she's, quote, disobedient because it shows she thinks for herself and feels comfortable enough in her home to make a mistake. I love watching my dog's curiosity and wonder at the world. We have, a beautiful, we have had a beautiful fall where I live, and she loves the crunchy leaves. She stares at them in wonder as they fall from the trees and likes to crawl on her belly through the leaves in the yard. She's so sweet, innocent, and cute, and everything is good in her eyes. It makes me completely astonished that whoever owned her before gave her up in the first place because she's such a wonderful little girl. And I love that stage when you're still discovering all of a new artist's songs, but you're, you can already tell that you're going to love them. And then she writes, sorry, Paul, but frosted Pop-Tarts are better. Oh, why, why did you have to ruin the end of that with your blasphemy? There's no other way to put it. There is no other way to put it. And I'm tempted to cast you to the bowels of hell with that person I cast previously but I want that other person to suffer alone for their transgression, which I can't even remember what it was. But be assured, once they've had enough of the bowels of hell, you will be right on their heels. You'll actually probably pass them in limbo. So maybe you guys can high-five each other as you plummet to the fiery depths with your frosted Pop-Tarts. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this week's episode and the surveys and uh, just thank you so much for those of you that that fill those out. They, it, it means a lot to me and it's such a big part of the show. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck and alone, you're not alone. And help is out there. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.